Good morning. Rejoice the Lord. And again, I say, oh, it is. You have to give me a second to catch my breath, but I am so thankful to be here today. Um, wow. God is so good. God is so good. It's been so cool to see uh, people that we've been praying for, uh, God work in their lives, to see children, uh, come to know Christ, profess their faith publicly, and uh, we had every generation in there. That was a tremendous blessing. Well, we're in our uh, fifth week on our series in Malachi called Return to Me, where God is calling the nation of Israel to come back to Him. This is the last book of the Old Testament. It was written 400 years before Christ was born and 100 years after Israel returned from exile. Now, In the last five weeks, we looked at how Israel rejected and disobeyed God. And we looked at how Israel had been denying God's love, defiling his name by bringing poor sacrifices, lame animals, profaning his name by being unfaithful to each other, unfaithful in their marriages, accusing God of injustice, and neglecting the temple by withholding their tithes. And so today we come to the sixth and the last speech in Malachi. At the core of the issue of these five speeches was the heart of the people. Their heart was reflected in their finances, their relationships, and their attitude towards God. And today what God is going to do is going to separate and say there are are two different people here. There are the faithful and the unfaithful. And he has a word for both sets of people. So before we get into that, let's pray. God, you are so good and so gracious. We're so thankful for the testimonies of of Charlotte and Isabella and Isaiah and Emily and Mark and Sally. People who you've saved, Lord. You've redeemed them. And now they want to publicly profess that they want to follow you for the rest of their life. We thank you for those testimonies. And Lord, today as we open up your word, we pray that it would impact our hearts and our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever watched something that was unjust and just made you mad? My brother was 17 years older than me. He was an all-state basketball player, and he taught me how to play basketball the right way. Now, being 17 years older than me, he was significantly better than me uh, for my all of my childhood. And he taught me that you have to play the game the right way. So I was not allowed to double dribble. I was not allowed to travel, any of that stuff. One day... He claimed that I double dribbled, but I was behind and I was trying to make a comeback. So I kept playing. And he said, Phil, stop. You double dribbled. I said, and I just kept playing. And my goal was I was going to score anyways. Well, being that he was 17 years older than me and significantly more athletic at that point, I went up for the shot and he hit that ball so hard, so hard that it went through our kitchen window. (laughs) But at the core of his anger in that moment, why he wanted to show me a lesson is because what I was doing was wrong. It was, it was unjust. It wasn't right. And we can easily find ourselves looking out into the culture, looking out at our workplaces, looking out at all the different people we interact with, and we can say, that's unjust. In fact, the Israelites found themselves in that place. They were a nation that was surrounded by nations that were prosperous. And they looked at those nations and they said, God, you're not doing something. Why are they prospering and, I, and we're not? 
Why are you allowing good things to happen to them? And it seems like bad things are happening to us. And so we come to the last speech in chapter 3, verse 13. And God says, you have spoken arrogantly against me. Now, interestingly enough, in the Hebrew, what that means is they're talking amongst themselves. God is hearing their conversations. As they talk amongst themselves, they're judging God. Now, we can find ourselves doing this all the time. Sometimes we feel like we have our own sense of what's right and wrong, our own sense of how things should be. And we can easily stand in judgment over God and say, God, this is how things should go. And unfortunately, we put the wrong motives. We don't recognize that God is sovereign and control, and we are not. And ultimately, He stands in judgment over us, not us in judgment over Him. It immediately reminded me of uh, chapter 2, where God says, You've wearied the Lord with your words. By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. And they said, where is the God of justice? And here they're making a parallel argument. God, you are not doing your job. Yet you ask, next verse, what have he said against you? They're like, we didn't say anything against you. Not I, said the fly. It's It's not us. We're not doing this. And God says, you have said... It is futile to serve God. Now, this word futile just means what it means in English. You know, it means something that is is worthless, something that's useless, something that's a waste of time. And then they said, what do we gain? Now, sometimes when we're reading stuff in English, we don't catch the big picture of what's happening. This word, this Hebrew word, is used all throughout the, the Bibles to describe dishonest gain. It's used to describe circumstances where people were, were trying to exercise greed or, or bribe others or oppress others. In other words, God is saying, you know, you're asking, what do we gain? You're trying to manipulate me into doing something. What do we gain by carrying out God's requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? Now we're like, okay, what do you mean going about by mourners? Well, in that culture, they had times where they would uh, go about these rituals to express that they were, they were lamenting or they were sad or they were repentant. If you think of the prophets in the Old Testament, you think of times where they put on sackcloth and ashes and, and they cried out to the Lord. Essentially, what God is saying is you're going out and you're acting like you're being repentant. You're acting like you're sorry for your sins. You're acting like you recognize what you've done. But in reality, your heart is wrong. In Malachi 2, God says that the men of Israel were flooding the altar with their tears. But God says, look, that doesn't change the offerings you were trying to bring with me. Their outward actions were dishonest and sincere. Their repentance wasn't genuine. And their accusation was that it wasn't worth it to follow God, that we won't gain anything. Now, the irony about this is if you were here last week, just a few verses before this, God told the Israelites to test him by bringing the whole tithe into the temple. And what did he say he would do if they were obedient 
He said he'd throw open the floodgates and pour out blessing on them so much that there'd be no room enough to store it. That he would protect their crops and cause them to be faithful. That he called all the nations to recognize God's blessing on Israel. And immediately after, God makes those covenant or those conditional promises. If you turn to me, if you return to me, if you do what I've called you to do, I will bless you. They say serving God is futile and worthless. They say, God, we're not going to do what you asked us to do. You said if we do this, you'll bless us, but nope. We're just going to say that's futile. That's worthless. It shows that they didn't actually believe God, that they had a lack of faith, that they had a lack of trust, that they selfishly didn't want to actually do what God called them to do. One commentary described this as an attitude of reciprocity. I love that phrase. Reciprocity is I give you something, you give me something back. Tit for tat kind of thing. They're saying, God, we did these things. Now it's your turn to give us what we want. That's the danger of the prosperity gospel. I mean, last week we talked about how God does bless our gifts, but he doesn't always bless them financially. But the danger of the prosperity gospel is, okay, God, I'm giving you this stuff. Now you have to give it back to me even more. And so it changes our motivations of the New Testament of of giving with joy and gladness into giving with expectation that God would do something in return for our selfless act, which is actually selfish. I've seen this years and years, counseling people in ministry. They say things like, you know, I've been attending church, but things haven't gotten any better. I've made these changes in my marriage, and she still isn't responding in the way I wanted her to. We do this in our relationships. We do it at church. We do it with God, where we say, if I do this, then God, you should therefore respond with these types of blessings. All the while, God knew their heart. God knew their motives. We spent the last five weeks outlining the ways that their worship fell short, and yet they were expecting God to do what they wanted him to do. In the words of one theologian, God's written requirements were to them only a means to personal gain. We're coming up on Christmas. They basically treated God like Santa. They're saying, okay, if we're going to do these things, and if we do these things, I want all the gifts. But God had a list, and they were on the naughty list. (laughs) They didn't realize their hearts were hardened, and their expectation for blessing was one that could not really be fulfilled because they weren't actually following God. They were just going through the motions. Here's their second accusation. But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Again, there's this attitude of reciprocity. They're thinking, okay, look at all these nations over here. They are not doing what's right. And so therefore, if God is a God of reciprocity, God should punish them. God should do something to cause harm to them because they are not living right. They're wicked. And they had this false sense of idea where they're pointing out. And it's interesting, evenly the words. Again, there's just these little things in the Hebrew that jump out that, that might not, you might not see in the first reading. He says, even when they put God to the test... Now, what did God just say a couple verses ago to the Israelites? Put me to the test. 
Bring your whole tithe into the temple and I will pour out my blessings. And instead of going, okay, we'll put you to the test. We'll do what you asked you to do. They look at the surrounding nations and say, they put you to the test and they're getting away with it. They're living in ways that you should come down and judge them and yet give us all the blessings. They had a hardened heart. They didn't see their own sin. They focused on the sin of the other. I'm a soccer coach, and this last year we went against one team, and that one team was horrible. I felt really bad for them, but they had one player who was amazing. And I swear she was like 21, and our kids were like 12. And she was really good, very stronger than everybody, faster than everybody, but she played dirty. And she would throw out her elbows, and she would hit people, and she would knock people over. She was cussing out our team. We got to halftime, and our kids were all upset. And, and they said, we need to push her back. We need. I'm like, no, no. Look, the rest will take care of stuff. The rest had already given her a warning. We don't play that way. Just because she's doing something wrong doesn't mean we go out and do something wrong back. Right after halftime, one of our kids went out, and the first thing he did is he pushed her immediately. Sub, get that kid out of there. When he came, he said, we don't do that. That's not how we play the game. Because she's doing something wrong, that doesn't give us the right to do something wrong as well. But what the Israelites were doing is they're looking at the other of the other nations, and they're saying, they're playing dirty. Look at them. Look at how bad they are. And yet, they're still prosperous. They're still doing good. We're over here. We're, we're the good country. They're the ones that are bad. All the while ignoring and minimizing their own sin. Now take a moment to think about that. Do we ever do that? Do we ever look at other people and complain about their sins? while ignoring our own? Do we ever maximize or emphasize the sins of the culture that we don't struggle with, and yet never point the finger back at ourselves, never put uh, an examination onto our own hearts to see, are there any ways that I am being disobedient? Are there any ways that I am not following God? We can easily look at the sins that we don't struggle with, the sins that we don't do, and ignore our own pride, our own selfishness, our own bitterness or unforgiveness, our own anger. We can ignore the fact that maybe we have a lack of faith or trust or even joy in the Lord. See, it's easy for us to criticize the Israelites, say, I can't believe you would do that, without pointing the finger back at ourselves and recognizing that we struggle with these very same things. Now, thankfully, there was a second group in Israel. There was a remnant, a group that had been faithful to the Lord. And we see this all throughout Scripture. We see there are groups within the nation of Israel that have remained faithful. One of my favorite stories is the story of Elijah. And, and Elijah had this mountaintop moment where, where God showed he was way more powerful than the other gods. And God called fire down upon the sacrifice. And yet after it, Jezebel threatened Elijah's life and he ran away. And he said to God, I'm all alone. But God said, there's this, there's 7,000 people who have not bended the knee who are faithful. And I'm going to give you Elisha who's going to walk with you. Here in Israel, there's this faithful remnant. It says, then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. What was the main difference between the first group and the second group? Well, the second group had a different attitude. They feared the Lord. 
Now, this is the second time I did a deep dive on fear on the Lord and had a whole bunch of stuff, but with baptism and communion, we're going to just really condense it. So someday I'm going to give a long exposition on the fear of the Lord, but today we're just going to do a simple one, and just the easiest way to explain it for me is from Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. So the first element of fear in the Lord is recognizing who He is, and worshiping Him with reverence and awe, knowing who He is, putting Him in the right place. But the second element is that knowing that God is a consuming fire. That doesn't mean that we are afraid in the sense of someone who is afraid of a, of a bad father, but it's a sense that, as a kid, I had the best father a person could ever ask for. And when I sinned against him, I, I was afraid because I let him down. I hadn't done what I wanted to do. And it wasn't because I was afraid of my dad. I wasn't afraid of my dad in any way, shape, or form. But it's this concept that that God is a consuming fire. And if God is a consuming fire, we need to approach him with the appropriate respect and honor, with reverence and awe. All right, let's go on. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. Just like the first group. You remember the first group, they're talking with each other, and they're complaining about God. Well, the second group, they're talking with each other, and yet the Lord listened and heard. Well, well, why? What did they talk about? Now, we don't know exactly. They could have been talking about the, the goodness of God, God's faithfulness. They could have been thanking God. Whatever it was, the fear of the Lord came out of their speech. As they talked, God heard their, the way they talked about him. If I today was walking with a cup of coffee and someone hit that cup of coffee, what would come out? coffee. Mountain Dew wouldn't come out. Water wouldn't come out. Milk wouldn't come out. If I had a cup of coffee, coffee would come out. The idea is that this faithful remnant, as they talked about things, what came out was their fear of the Lord. What came out was their trust in the Lord. What came out was their love for the Lord. Because God had changed their attitude and their heart and their convictions as they talked, what came out was different. And because of that, God responded different to them. It says, the Lord listened and heard. Now, this is something that we should look into a little bit. Uh, When I go on a date with my wife, I was a fast food manager for six years, and we have a specific rule. If we go to a fast food restaurant, a quick service restaurant, I have to sit facing facing away from the kitchen. I can't sit facing the kitchen because if I sit facing the kitchen, I'm not a good conversationalist. I don't listen well because all I see is that guy didn't put on the right gloves and my food might, this might kill me. And I'm thinking all that stuff all the time. So when we sit down and eat, I have to turn and give my full attention to my wife. And in Hebrew, this idea is, is turning your ear to, of paying attention to this. Now it is true that God hears everything we say. You know, Hebrews Four says that nothing is hidden from God's sight. Our thoughts, the attitudes of our heart, he sees and hears all. And he saw and heard the conversations of the unfaithful group. But what is God saying about this? Well, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how the Israelites had been unfaithful in their marriage. And we talked about how as husbands, if we don't live with our wives in a loving and understanding way, that our prayers are actually hindered. 
All throughout the scriptures, we have this concept of God listening and hearing our prayers differently if we're living faithfully. Proverbs 28, 9 says this, If anyone turns a deaf ear to my instruction, even their prayers are detestable. God says, look, if you're, if you're turning away from me and you're praying, praying that, that, that prayer is actually detestable. First Peter 3, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are attentive to their prayer. God is listening to the righteous. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So maybe if your prayers are not working, the question is to say, God, am I truly following you? Now with that said, we don't want to take it too far to the other side. Emily shared in her testimony that sometimes well-meaning Christians blame people for the situations they do and and the the disheartening thing about that testimony is to say she wasn't deserving of salvation because none of us are deserving of salvation it's only by god's grace that's why god comes alongside of us so we don't want to take this too far and think if god has given me a no or god isn't give me an answer that therefore i'm not righteous but the idea here is that we are called to follow the lord and we do that it's pleasing to him in fact, how pleasing is it? It says the Lord listened to their and heard their conversation and a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. Now we see instances all throughout the Bible of God writing stuff on the scroll. We see it in Isaiah and Daniel and Revelation and some other places. But I think this is significant here. Now because if, if you know the history,